please turn in your Bibles now to back to Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> As you do so, I to share this a little bit with you. I, I, I was a history major in college, but I didn't have nearly the appreciation of history then that I do now. And over the years, for some reason, I've developed a particular interest in the history of warfare. Maybe it's because of the heroism that's demonstrated many times in battle, or because of the incredible stories of providence that bring about victory to our side. Uh, maybe it's because of the power shifts, the national shifts uh, that take place coming out of war, like the Revolutionary War and the establishment of our own nation. Closer to home, it might be because my father served in the infantry in World War II in Germany and Czechoslovakia. But for whatever reason, I, I find myself fascinated by the depictions of war, both in movies, the good ones, and in documentaries. Now, back in 1914, began what was called at the time the Great War. And in fact, it was naively called the War to End All Wars, right? Well, later on, they had to rename it World War I because another more terrible war broke out, World War II. And as sad and terrible as that was, that also did not end all wars. And to this very day, our world continues to be afflicted with the carnage of warfare. But what we read about this morning in Revelation 19 certainly will be the war to end all wars. Now, earlier, John has described the marriage supper of the Lamb in verses 6 through 10. But now he sees another vision, and it's totally different. <clears throat> In that text, the bride is described, but there's really nothing said about the bridegroom. But here we find a wondrous and glorious depiction or description of the Lord Jesus. Rather than a gentle bridegroom embracing his bride, he's a fierce warrior who comes to conquer all of his enemies. Robert Mounts in his commentary calls this chapter the central vision in the entire book of Revelation. I don't know if it's a central vision or not. I, I can tell you my, my favorite visions are the ones in chapter 4 and 5, the, the, the throne room of heaven and the worship of heaven, but also that glorious vision of the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. But here we find the final judgment of the beast and the false prophet and the followers of the enemy. This is for us a new cycle of judgment. I've told you before, Revelation is, is organized around seven concurrent cycles of judgment. It's not sequential. They're taking place. It's, it's, it's concurrent descriptions of the same events from different perspectives or of concurrent events from different perspectives and different emphases. And here in the sixth cycle, we find the judgment of the beast and of the false prophet, describing here the climactic battle of Armageddon. Now, in chapter 16, we read of the seven bulls of God's wrath. That was part of the fourth cycle. And out of the mouth of the dragon comes the beast and the false prophet, and these unclean spirits like frogs gather around. They deceive the world. They gather together the kings of the earth. And we read, they assembled them for battle on the great day of the Almighty, and they assembled, assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
And that's where the seventh bowl of God's wrath destroys his enemies entirely. Now we're coming back to that very same battle and viewing it from a different perspective. The focus here is not on the armies assembled against the Lord. The focus of John's attention here is on our great warrior Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, our conquering king, our exalted Lord. So first of all, I want you to see in the first uh, verses 11 through 16 that Jesus is portrayed for us as a rider on the white horse. Heaven stands open for John's, before John's eyes, and he sees this white horse with a rider. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. This is, again, I, it's, it's the second betrayal portrayal of the battle of Armageddon. It tells us in righteousness or with justice, he judges and makes war. And in the previous chapter, he describes the judgment of Babylon, the seducing influence throughout the world that causes us to run, to, to draw away from Christ into this world. Here we find judgment poured out upon the beast and with him the false prophet and those who follow So, John gives us vivid description of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to remember, Revelation's highly symbolic. So, we're not to picture this as a literal scene with every element literally looking the way it's described here. Rather, we want to understand the powerful images and what they tell us about the Lord Jesus. First of all, we see Jesus is seated on a white horse. And it's interesting to me that John says, I saw a horse, a white horse. And the horse is the first thing he sees, not the Lord Jesus, but seated upon that horse is one called faithful and true. And I think maybe the reason he, said, he refers to the horse first is simply to heighten the drama. I'm not sure. But here he introduces our conquering king. Now, the white horse, it's important. It's an important symbol. It's a symbol of conquest. It's a symbol of battle, of victory. If you remember in the Gospels, Toward the end of Jesus' ministry on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and we call it the triumphal entry. But he rode in on a colt of a donkey. He rode in on a, 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 a symbol of peace, not of conquest. But now he rides in on the symbol of conquest and of destruction, a mighty steed on which he rides to bring triumph to the kingdom of God and conquer all of his enemies. And the name of the one who is seated on this white horse, it says he is faithful and true and in righteousness or justice, or excuse me, in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is faithful and true to execute judgment on his enemies. Everything that he does is righteous, is just, is perfect. Now, for centuries... I'm going back to my history leanings here. But scholars have talked about war, and they've they've, they've talked about the carnage of war, the wickedness of war, but they've developed what's called a just war theory. And before a country goes into war, they should consider these criteria, things like, is our cause just? Are we going in to promote our own ambitions Or are we seeking to protect those who are being victimized and oppressed or defend ourselves? Is it a just cause? That war must be declared by the proper authority. It needs to be 
an actual government, a legitimate government, and not simply a, 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 a vigilante action. And the end, the way that war is carried out, must be proportional to the conflict and to the means that are used in carrying out that conflict. In other words, okay, they did wrong, so we're going to go and massacre them all. No, that's not the way it should be carried out. It, it must be just in its purpose and in its execution. Well, Jesus' final war against the enemies of God is perfect. It's just in all its ways. The wicked of this earth deserve the judgment that's being described here in the book of Revelation. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet clearly deserve God's judgment. The kings, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus makes war on them. He judges them in righteousness. But the kings of the earth also make war against the lamb. And Romans 8 tells us the carnal mind already is at war. It's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It's not even able to do so. Vern Poitras points out that earthly wars cause untold human suffering, unjust suffering, innocent casualties. And earthly wars on one side or the other are always the result of sinful human ambition. But this war will be entirely just, and there will be no innocent civilian casualties, both in its purpose and its execution. He is faithful and true, and he judges justly. Secondly, it tells us his eyes are like blazing fire that speaks to the omniscience of the Lord Jesus, that he sees everything, that penetrating gaze that sees every human heart perfectly. Man looks on the outside, but the Lord sees the heart. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You cannot hide from God. He sees he knows the eyes of the Lord Jesus seated on this white horse are like a blazing fire. Nothing is hidden from him. And it says on his head are many diadems in verse 12. Now, now the word here doesn't refer to that wreath that's a victor's crown in, in the athletic games. Rather, it's a royal crown, the crown of a king. And Whereas the beast had seven heads and seven crowns, here he has many crowns, numberless, because his authority is unlimited. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Verse 12 says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, it's interesting. On one level, we have three very specific names attributed to Jesus in this very text. In verse 11, he's called faithful and true. Verse 13, it says, the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet we read here in verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. One of the commentators suggests maybe that name is actually written on all of the crowns. We don't know. But there's a lot of speculation out there about what might that name be. Now, how much time do you think we should spend trying to guess or figure out what that name might be? I will tell you, none. In fact, I have a theological category or file that I call Nunya. And that literally means Nunya business. And my point here is 
God has chosen to keep it a mystery. Now, it's tantalizing when he says he has this name and nobody can know it, and we're like, oh, I want to know. But we dare not attempt to go where the Scriptures do not lead us. We do not want to engage in theological trespassing. We don't want to commit vain speculation. If God chose not to explain such mysteries but to leave them as a mystery, then we need to stop at the very edge of revealed truth and go no further. It tells us further in verse 13, 13, he's, he's clothed in a robe that's been dipped in blood. Now, in this context, it's not talking about dipped in his own blood. It's actually talking about dipped in the blood of his enemies. He's a conquering warrior. Turn with me to Isaiah 63, if you would, because this is actually alluding to what we read in Isaiah 63. The heading in the ESV Bible, anyway, says the day of the Lord's vengeance. And here we describe the warrior Messiah king who has brought vengeance or justice upon his enemies. And so this, this vision John describes harkens back, as much of Revelation harkens back to the Old Testament. In, Revela- in, in Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom? This is verse 1. In crimson garments from, the, from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, Messiah answers, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like this, like his who treads in a winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Again, verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's a gruesome scene. But again, the wickedness of this earth warrants that degree of judgment and wrath. See, we live in a day when we're supposed to be nice and tolerant and kind, and yet it's one of the most unkind, intolerant, and even violent ages known to man. One of the commentators, Robert, Robert Mount, said, apocalyptic imagery is not squeamish. <laughs> Sometimes it's pretty gruesome. And so we find the Lord Jesus depicted in a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, and the name by which he called is, he is called is the Word of God. Now, who wrote the book of Revelation? John, the apostle John. What else did the apostle John write? I'll give you a hint. I'm not referring to 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, but rather he wrote the gospel of John, which begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word The Word was with God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is His name here in Revelation chapter 19, hearkening back to what we read even in verse 1 of John chapter 1. Our great warrior Messiah is God's final word to this sin-cursed world. Vern Poitras 
says, by virtue of his divinity and his lordship overall, he has the ability to bring to conclusion the history that he has ruled over from the very beginning. He's bringing a conclusion to that which he created. And then it tells us in verse 15, there's a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now, again, I said earlier, we're not to take this, every detail of this, as a literal description of what Jesus will look like on that day. These are symbolic. And this sharp sword proceeding from his mouth refers to the powerful word of God. And Ephesians 6, verse 17, speaks of the weapons of warfare we are given in, in Christian armor, and one is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now think with me, what does the Bible attribute to the powerful Word of Christ? Well, in Genesis 1, it says God created all things by His Word. His powerful word spoke all things into existence. And Colossians 1 tells us that the Lord Jesus is actually the agent of creation. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created in heaven and earth and under, th- under earth, angels, thrones, well, all that is. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the agent of creation by his powerful word. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, uh, we read that the Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 4, we read the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, in Ephesians 4.12, it's talking about the Bible as the word of God. But you see this overlap of imagery of the word as being a sword, sharp, to divide and pierce and penetrate the depths of our hearts, but coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in this last great battle to completely defeat and destroy all of his enemies. In chapter 16, we find this battle where, uh, where all of God's enemies are destroyed by, by lightning and peals of thunder and this great earthquake. Here, in 19, the Lord Jesus conquers his enemies by the power of his word. It tells us also that he rules with an iron scepter. We read in Psalm chapter 2 a little bit earlier, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is the third time in Revelation John has referred to that very text in Psalm 2 that Jesus would rule with a rod of iron. And it emphasizes over and over that Jesus is going to conquer those nations hostile to the rule and reign of God. When he says you'll rule them with a rod of iron, he's not talking about governing friendly citizenry. He's talking about conquering rebellious kings and nations. And further, it says he will tread them, tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, again, we find this this imagery of the the winepress of the wrath of God uh, elsewhere in Revelation, that God is carrying out his fierce judgment against his enemies. Now, there are those in our day and in, in, in days not too far distant from us who have wanted to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is angry and filled with wrath. He's not very nice. But the God of the New Testament is kind and gentle and loving and full of mercy and grace. Well, last time I checked, Revelation was in the New Testament. In fact, it was the last book written in the New Testament. And as loving and gracious and kind as Jesus is portrayed in the very book of John, John is the one who tells us 
of this horrific wrath of God in the book of Revelation. I've never counted myself, but many have said, and I trust them, that Jesus spoke more of hell than he spoke of heaven. So the idea that we can separate out and say there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament is patently false. It, it completely ignores the message of the gospel, which is God's wrath is kindled hot against sin. And that wrath was poured out on the Lord Jesus. And if we don't understand how fierce God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, we won't appreciate his death and his sacrifice for us. But that wrath that is not satisfied in Christ for those who do not trust in him, they remain under that wrath and it is stored up for them until the day of judgment and it will be terrible. God's wrath is not sugar-coated or downplayed in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned, I believe, 11 times in seven different chapters. It is a major theme in this final revelation of who God is and what he plans to do in this world. And the most graphic depictions of God's wrath are here in the book of Revelation. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Turn with me to chapter 14 briefly for a moment. Verses 19 and 20. The last two verses in chapter 14. Revelation. The harvest of the earth. Again, same battle. In a different cycle of description here. But it says in verse 19, the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, which is about yay high, for 1,600 stadia. That's nearly 200 miles. We think about the floods in Florida right now from the storm surge and how horrific that would be. Imagine a flood of human blood, 184, 185 miles in length, the height of a horse's bridle. God is not to be trifled with. And so we have this image of a person trampling the grapes in this vine, or this, 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 this grape, this uh, vine or wine vat, extracting the grape juice. But the vat is actually, the wine press is God's wrath, and the juice coming out is the blood of his enemies. And verse 13 tells us that Jesus' robe is dipped. It's red with their blood. And the name on his thigh and on his robe, King of kings, Lord of lords, Remember Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus will be given the name above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see that every king will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every enemy will be defeated. Every earthly king will be humbled. He is the king over all kings and the Lord over every human ruler. Following in Jesus' train, verse 14 tells us, is the armies of heaven. In the armies of heaven, verse 14, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Just like their conquering king, riding on white horses. And they're arrayed in fine linen, not dipped in blood, but white and pure. In the Old Testament, the armies of heaven uniformly referred to angels. 
And in fact, in chapter 15, the seven angels who brought out the seven plagues, it tells us were wearing, they were clothed in pure bright linen. But earlier in this chapter, verse 8 of chapter 19, it's speaking of the bride of Christ coming, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the question has arisen, who composed this final army of heaven in the battle of Armageddon? And the answer could be saints and angels. We really don't know. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But either way, their robes are white and pure. They're not dipped in blood. They don't engage in the fight. Jesus fights our battles for us on this day. He conquers all of his and our enemies. And we ride with him to celebrate his victory. His victory is our victory. You remember in Revelation chapter seven, uh, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives these very direct letters to seven churches, cities in Asia Minor. And at the end of each one of these addresses or letters, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give. And then he makes promises to those who persevere overcoming the afflictions and oppressions of this world. He is speaking to beleaguered believers, calling us to overcome the challenges of this life. But on this vision, the tables are turned. Clothed in fine linen, we ride with him, we conquer with him, we reign with him. And he fights our battles for us. So the first thing John sees here is the the Lord Jesus, this mighty conquering king leading his armies into battle. But then John's attention turns to another feature in the vision. He sees an angel, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. That sounds like quite a feast. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So now this final battle is portrayed as a great supper, the supper of God. And it's a gruesome description. The birds of the air flying overhead are invited to gorge themselves on the flesh of the mighty of this earth. Now, for ancient soldiers in our day, they, they have this, uh, this, this, this commitment, we will leave no man behind. So even if a man falls in battle, his unit is, is duty-bound, honor-bound to go retrieve his body and bring it home for an honored burial. And in that day, the idea of leaving a man's body in the field for the, for the birds of the air to devour was the greatest possible dishonor. One of the ancient war movies I have, have watched, the wife says to her husband, the general, come back either with your shield or on your shield. Recognizing come back in victory or if you come back in defeat, on your shield. But to be left in the field, devoured by vultures, was the greatest possible indignity and disgrace. Now, 
John is describing these birds. They're flying directly overhead, circling around like vultures circling over a prey. And if you've driven down the highway in the country, you've seen that before, that uh, some wild animal has died in the woods not far away, and the vultures are just circling around waiting for the opportunity. Maybe the animal's not quite fully dead yet, but in time they're going to descend and devour. They're going to gorge themselves on his flesh. So from this day forward, Every time you see that image, you're driving on the highway or you're out in the woods and you see vultures flying in the air, I want you to go back and remember Revelation 19 and look forward to that day. Just like the rainbow, you see the rainbow and you remember the promise of God's faithfulness never to destroy the earth again. When you see the vultures flying overhead, remember the judgment of God and the terror of the wicked being destroyed by the mighty word of his power and gorged by flocks of vultures. This, this, this grisly, gruesome supper stands in very stark contrast to what we read earlier in the chapter about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, the angel said, blessed are those who are invited to that supper. But here, as, as John describes the, the, the mighty men, the horses, their riders, the kings, the captains, the all men, free and slave, small and great. No one is exempt from the judgment of God. There's nowhere to hide. And all the pomp and glory and dignity of this world, all the riches, all the wealth, all the power cannot protect anyone from the wrath of the Lamb. Earlier, we read of those kings of the earth who will cry out to the rocks and mountains, fall on us, hide us. From the wrath of the Lamb. There's no one outside of Christ. No one, not one, outside of genuine relationship with Jesus Christ who will escape this dreadful wrath of God. And so we see the final judgment of the beast and the false prophet depicted in verses 19 and 21. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse in his army. And the beast was captured with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who'd worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They were cast for all time into hell. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The beast represents all those official, those uh, uh, state-sponsored influences that persecute the saints and that oppose God, that stand in opposition to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of men. The false prophet are all those influences, false religions and other influences, philosophies that, that deceive men and lead them astray that they might worship the beast, that they might indulge in the excesses of Babylon. Preaches to them this message that sounds so appealing. Deceives them with miracles and signs that look persuasive and yet lead them to destruction. And so we find the beast here gathered with the kings of the earth and their armies. And they're assembled to make this one final assault against the lamb and his army. And it's interesting, John does not describe here the details of the battle. He only gives us the outcome. The beast, the false prophet, are utterly defeated. They're humiliated. They're cast into this lake of fire for all eternity. 
And then the kings and the armies. Those who were deceived by the false prophet who received the mark of the beast. They're slain by the sword proceeding from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. His powerful word. Remember I said earlier, he created the entire world by his powerful word. He sustains it. He, or, he, he, he uh, orders its affairs by his powerful word. Here in Revelation 19, he conquers all his enemies and he exacts just, justice and judgment by that same powerful word. And John gives us this, this final macabre detail. That means gruesome. I had to come up with another word. That the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, apocalyptic literature is not squeamish. It's not delicate sometimes. But this isn't the last word regarding those who dwell on the earth who are not in Christ. Because Revelation 20 is going to show us how they're raised once again to stand before the great white throne of judgment and receive their eternal judgment. So as terrifying as this catastrophic defeat at Armageddon will be, and it will be terrifying, it pales in comparison to the terrors of the final and eternal judgment of God. Well, in this chapter, if you read the whole chapter, you'll see two great feasts described. The first feast is a glorious sight. It's unimaginable in its glory and its joy. My son uh, is an ice carver. He went to near Myrtle Beach yesterday and carved a, a wonderful uh, ice sculpture for a really, really fancy wedding at Brook Green Gardens, if you know where that is. Who knows what this family laid out for this, this wedding feast? And we saw pictures, and it was like, wow, that's impressive. Nothing, nothing compared to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then the second feast is this horrific sight of unimaginable carnage. The angel proclaims in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And those on the invitation list, they are the bride of Christ. Every redeemed saint of all time will be there. But juxtaposed against that glorious celebration is the great supper of God. And the invitation list there will be the birds of the air. And while it doesn't tell us what the menu will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the menu at the great supper of God will be the flesh of kings and of rulers and generals and slave and free and great and small and all who are not in Christ. That's a party I don't want to be any part of. So again, just like the rainbow is this perpetual reminder of the faithfulness of God to his promise, every time you see those vultures circling in the sky, I want you to remember the image of the coming wrath of God. Not a single person outside of Christ will escape. Not one. So to quote Francis Schaeffer, some of you remember Francis Schaeffer, he wrote the book, How Shall We Then Live? So how shall we then live? First of all, if you're not a Christian, flee to the wrath that come. There will be nowhere to flee on that day. There will be no refuge. But Jesus says, come to me. All you're weary and, 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 and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our refuge. He's our savior. But you must come to him. Scriptures tell us now is the day of salvation. Hebrews says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is no one will escape who does not flee to Christ and find refuge in him. He is the savior of our souls. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the king who will conquer all of his and our enemies. 
He's also the Lamb who will deliver all who take refuge in Him. Why? Why would you remain outside of Christ? Why would you turn your heart and harden your heart from Him when He is such a kind Savior but a severe judge? Christian, now's the time that we must seek to rescue those who are lost. John tells us their their terrible fate, describes it here vividly. These vultures circling overhead, waiting to gorge themselves on their flesh. It should break our hearts. It should produce such a burden and such a longing that we will make the most of every opportunity we read in Colossians to bring the truth of the gospel to the hearts of those around us, those you love, those you've never met. How can we be callous and careless when the vultures are circling overhead? May God have mercy on us to move us to rescue those who are perishing. But also, Christian, we look with eagerness toward that glorious day. Commentator Richard Brooks says, this is the day for which the bridegroom has been waiting. This is the day for which the people of Christ have been longing. And the day even for which the whole of creation has been groaning and travailing. We have this promise of glory in our hearts, but we live in between that already delivered from sin and not yet of entering in. Our souls long for that fulfillment. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. So let me close with these words from Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly.